if I look back at it, the skills and the experience and even the feeling of failure to some degree is like a good thing to have, right? In his perspective to have that anytime you're in a tough situation, you're like, uh, things could be a lot worse, right? And so that perspective, I think, um, you don't get until you've had some downs. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Barron, and on this episode of The Leadership Backstory, Brendan Schneider and I speak with Ahad Khan, CEO of Kajabi, a platform that helps creators build knowledge into income. We all know that the creator economy is growing by leaps and bounds, but before Ahad took the job there, his career path took him from finance to private equity to building startups. Learn how each will inform the other and shaped his leadership philosophy. I know I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Let's get started. Ahad, thanks for joining us on the show today. You know, look, I've you know spent some time looking at your career. You've had some really interesting stops along the way, and the whole premise of you know this conversation is to understand. You know, today you're sitting as the CEO of Kajabi, which you know is very well known in the creator space. Lots and lots and lots of people using it for all sorts of things. But before you got there, it, what were the twists and turns that actually took you on that path? And I'm I'm super curious, like. How did you get started with this? Like, at what point in your career did you realize that you were on a trajectory to potentially do what you're doing today? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, what, when I ever talk to groups, it, everything seems very linear and logical when you look at somebody's LinkedIn profile, right? Like, this natural step made sense here, this one happened there. And like, part of that is deliberate. Like, people like to, you know, um, have that kind of like natural progression or linear progression to their career. I, I don't. I would be lying to you if I said that, you know, five years ago, I was like, I want to be the CEO of a company at the stage that I'm at um, in my life, right? It was it was an overall goal for sure. But I think a lot of the, for me, um, at a macro level, a lot of stuff is just like uh, things sometimes turn against you and sometimes turn towards you, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I've been very lucky, um, like, many steps along the way. Like I can start with family, starts with where I grew up. It honestly starts with like uh, Brendan and the high school I went to. And I, 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 I kind of say that as a joke because he's here, but I, I do think these things are all interrelated. Um, and so I think it's when stuff breaks your way and you're there to take the opportunity to run with it. It's kind of like the macro theme um, and you're hungry, right? Like you're willing to do stuff and that's kind of how it starts. Well, Ahad, let me go way back considering yeah. how old I am now and you're a former student of mine in yeah, yeah, transparency. Yeah. yeah. So when you were a tennis star in high school, as I remember, right? I yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Did um was finance on your radar? Uh, was that something you wanted to do? No, I'll tell you. In high school, the way it worked was uh, my brother was four years older than I was. Um, and went to the same high school, right? Mm -hmm. And he was a, a a smart and very studious guy, right? And so he had kind of trailblazed the path in front of me, which was kind of set the watermark in my family, right? And, and to get a little bit more background, my parents are immigrants from Pakistan. They came to the U.S. in the 70s, and they landed in Ohio, which doesn't sound like it makes sense, but I absolutely loved growing up in Ohio. So I grew up in like Northeast Ohio. My parents were physicians in Northeast Ohio. So very educated parents. My brother didn't um, drop the ball on that at all. He's a He's like a neurosurgeon now um, in, in the Bay Area. And so when I was in high school, I don't think I had like, I knew what I wanted to be where I grew up. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor, right? And so that was one thing. I was like, everybody else is my doctor. I'm going to not be a doctor, which sounds 
not rebellious at all. But when you're 15 and making decisions, you're like, yeah, I'm not going to be a doctor. <laughs> did, um, did that go over well with your parents or what? It was like, totally was... fine, actually, because my, oh, my God, dad was, um, again, an immigrant. So the way for him to come to the U.S. was to become a doctor, right? Mm. His personal passions were more like economics or political science or things like that, right? So when, when he came here, he wasn't like my kids have to copy and paste my my thing. I came here to give you guys flexibility. You kind of do you to some degree, right? So when I was going to college, um, I do swear to you this happened. My brother was a biomedical engineer in undergrad. He went to grad school for biomedical engineering. Then he went to medical school and then became like a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, I was like a fine student. Like I, I, I was probably like better, worse grades than capacity is the best way to describe it, I think. Um, that's fair. And when my, when I went to college, my dad's like, you can be any kind of engineer that you want. Right. <laughs> and the caveat there was any kind of engineer, I love it. which is, which was hilarious. Cause I was like, I don't, none of my like natural inclinations were towards, um, I wasn't bad at that stuff, but none of my natural inclinations were towards, oh, become like a applied math major in college. Right. But that was kind of the box. And like you kind of play within the box sometimes. So yeah. when I went to college, I studied um, uh, kind of systems engineering and mathematics was my main major. I did a, another major in economics and I did a minor in manufacturing engineering. And then I did a master's there as well in systems engineering and mathematics. All I watched you would say, Louis, was where I went to school. Um, so when I was in high school, I didn't have a proclivity to, to finance at all. I was yeah. like a proclivity to everything else besides like academics, just to be. Uh, honest. I think when I got to college, um, I still wasn't like fine. My brother, again, going back to him, he had a bunch of friends who were a little, again, his cohort, and they were all engineers, economics majors who then went to Wall Street, right? And they were like, this is like what the smart kids are doing, which is study something quantitative uh, in undergrad. Doesn't have to be finance, but it has to be numbers oriented and turn that into a, a career in Wall Street, right? So then I got laser focused on, well, all the smart kids are doing this. I want to do that too. And that catalyzed like a bunch of like internships and thinkings and, and networking that I did in college with, after I'd finished my master's, the, my first job was a job in investment banking. As a result of just like, honestly, people who I thought were smart were doing this. I It was almost like I followed them into that. Path. So it wasn't like I, I, I went to Wall Street Journal when I was 15. Like none of that stuff existed at all. Like <laughs> yeah. zero of it. Yeah, I'll describe Ahad this way. He no. had a lot of horsepower, <laughs> but he was in like third gear, <laughs> right? Like it, it oh, was always there. Yeah, we yeah, knew yeah. it. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. like, when is he going to drop into fourth and fifth? Yeah, which yeah. obviously you did in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah we but did but where was there was there a, an event in college, an internship, something that's that got you to where? What was the first one? William Blair and Company. Yeah, um, I, the the it's a couple of things. My what I did between my. Uh, senior high school and my freshman year of college was I did an internship, not finance related, but I moved to London for the summer, right? And I interned at the House of Lords, um, which is in the government, there's a House of Commons and the House of Lords, right? House of Lords is like this, it's not like our Senate, but it's like lifetime appointments. It's like this relic of like, I don't know, British past, right? But what it, the internship was amazing because when I was on my own for the first time, like living in London, which is fantastic. You're meeting people from all over the world, kind of in the job, but also just like young kids, like mucking around the city. Um, and what it catalyzed was like, there's so much opportunity uh, in this world and people are like 
like people are laser focused on their stuff, right? Like people aren't like, oh, he, he, I want to do it. I met like 17, 18 year olds who are like, I want to be prime minister of the UK or I'm from this country and I want to do this. And I was like 17 or 18 and I was like, I don't know anything. So I think when I came to college, there's also a guy, I don't know if you remember a guy named Ajay Dumball. Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, so he yeah, was yeah. my roommate at WashU. Um, That's right. This guy was like the top student in our class. He was unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. And he just kicked me around college all the time. Just like always beating me at everything. <laughs> so I had this like guy sitting next to me who I've known since I was 15, just doing great in college yeah. every step of the way. Yeah. He was like a nice little robber to try and keep up, though I could never keep up with this guy. It was just a machine. Um, and... But that internship, all that compounded was like, all right, cool. I got to take some stuff more seriously than I think I had historically. And my dad was just like, when college is over, you're like, you're on your own. Like, this isn't like, there's no like options here of like, <laughs> you're, you're going to, yeah, there's no family <laughs> business. There's no nothing. So, and he's like, you, you like grew up, you know, as you get older, you kind of realize um, the economic situation you grew up in may have been unique and you're really blessed and all this stuff. And he was just like, that stuff didn't just happen. So if you want to repeat that stuff, you got to do it on your own. And this is what you got to do. So it, that's where it started happening, where I was like, all right, I got to get my stuff in order. Um, so then I did another, I went back to London, did an internship at Bank of America in college. Um, and then I was just like, I'm going to figure this banking thing out. And so it was a lot of networking, a lot of that, that landed that job. But I think there was a confluence of events that happened off in college that made me just more focused than I had been historically. Did you find that, I mean, because before you said, did you, you know, when you're in high school, you're going to get an investment. You're like, no way. I like a million other things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. But then, yeah. you know, all that work you did in college, was there yeah. a moment you're like, hmm, I, I think I like this. Like, I'm getting passionate. Um, no, I, no, I don't think I went into banking thinking I was going to like it. I think mm. I went into it thinking that it unlocks a lot of career potential and it teaches you a lot. Right. It was a, it was on the job training like you've never experienced, which is. They take you and they just drop you in the middle of like finance, a little bit of training, but it's like, you're learning corporate finance. So I'd never taken a finance class before I did it. I had in my cohort were people who were like, went to Wharton undergrad and were finance majors, right? So it was very much like um, trial by fire, um, but in very intense, like you're working 80, 90 hour weeks for like we, you know, two years, right? Um, yeah. But what? I don't think it was a better way to learn. What did that, what did that unlock for you? Uh, I think it unlocked uh, knowledge acquisition was one thing, just like getting really flown in finance. I think it also unlocked that like, I, if you want to work hard, you can work hard. And that understanding of like, uh, you too, I think Brendan's analogy, there's a fourth gear, fifth gear, sixth gear, mm -hmm. if you want to go into that gear yeah. and having the confidence that I've been in that gear and I'd be able to produce in that gear has like a lot of confidence building compounding effects over time that I use till today. Like I'll be like, if there's a moment in time where I need to like really get after something, I'm not hesitant to get after it. Cause I've, I've done that in the past. And I think the whole point of banking is to teach you a lot about finance, obviously, and open up opportunities. But at a personal level, it was like, it pushes you beyond where you think are your limits. And then you have new limits because you've kind of ex exceeded what you've done in the past. Yeah. How did you leverage those limits? Like what was the next step? Um, so like after that job, I got, it's funny. I, um, I, so I was in Chicago for my first year. I went back to London for my next year. Right. So I, this, like, I always wanted to live abroad. There's like this international thread that I've been existing in. Um, and so I moved back there. Uh, and I was an analyst in London. It was cool. It was like, 
uh, it was working a lot, but, um, you know, instead of my diligence trips to go visit businesses, like when I'm in Chicago, it's like you go to Arkansas and you meet, meet like a, I don't know, like a refrigerator company or something. Um, it was like, you're going to London, you're going to fly to Milan and you're going to meet like this, like cool company doing this. So like it was eye opening from a, um, the world is again, same theme world has a lot of opportunities. You just got to put yourself there. Um, from a career perspective, I unlocked, like, frankly, the next step was other jobs in finance. So you could work at a hedge fund, you could work at a private equity firm, just things started coming at you versus you having to go get it. Right. And that felt very different than when I was trying to get into banking, where I was like, so thirsty for the opportunity to get a job all of a sudden people are like oh you have this experience like you should come work here right right which was really really which was very nice um at the same time i got married so my wife was at uh the university of michigan doing her master's um and she's an architect so we were like man should we stay in london for a while or should we go back to the u.s and so we ended up kind of deciding to go back to the u.s so i, I moved back to chicago for about two years and I worked at a hedge fund in Chicago called the discovery group. Um, and I just didn't like it. Um, it, it was one of those things where again, it, I was doing that because all the smart people kind of went into like the hedge fund world and I was like, cool, I'm just going to double down on that path. And when I got in there, it just didn't, it didn't, uh, it did play to my strengths at all. It was very like internal, uh, heavy analysis. You're not talking to people. You're kind of behind the desk, like crunching numbers all day. Um, and, that that wasn't my jam um does that is make it, sense is that the moment though like i mean i'm just thinking through like you're like up to this point you're talking about i think this is the path that everybody else is taking so i should take it too yeah and then all of a sudden you're like you know what i don't think i like this path like so was that the moment where you started to shift in a different direction no i there are two things i think spectrum was the moment but it was the end of spectrum when i was like i know when i i know when i like what I don't like, and I'm going to make a career transition to what I like. Well, tell right? us about Spectrum. Like, if yeah. you're not familiar with Spectrum, what was yeah. that? Yeah, so Spectrum Equity is a it's a private equity firm uh, based in Menlo Park in Boston. Um, they invest in like technology enabled services. So you think of SurveyMonkey or Seamless Web and Grubhub or Ancestry.com or like all these um, sometimes consumer, sometimes enterprise, but technology businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and the job there is to like as a junior person, especially, it's to go out and find companies to invest in, right? So a huge part of your day is spent cold calling, flying places, meeting entrepreneurs, like trying to understand their story, mark, mark them, like map the market, get smart about industries, yada, yada, yada. And then if you find an investment opportunity, you run at it and try to put money to work, right? I loved that job. And the reason I loved it was because it was very externally focused. Like, you're on the phone, you're talking to entrepreneurs, you're like getting their story. It was inspiring because of the like people in like, again, like Ohio were building these like massive businesses. And I'm like, how the hell did you think about this? Or even, and they're like, here's my story. It was like unbelievable exposure to like entrepreneurship. Right. Um, and then the football was they took advantage of my background in finance. That was like this really cool combination. Um, at the end of that journey, I was like, man, the people on the other side of the table, the ones like doing the work and building the companies, they are so interesting to me because they are like, nah, building the future is like too grandiose, but they're they're building enterprises and value. And they're, and they're like, all the ones I met were kind of enjoying it. And they're like also um, 
putting a dent in the universe a little bit, whatever dent that they wanted, right? The investors are like catalyzing it and putting fuel to the fire, but the operators are the ones who are doing the work. Right. And I was like, I want to be an operator, right? Okay. Because it's like, you do the work, you're like, you get all the, you get, it's the rewards and the downsides of it. But like, it's just really cool to be on that side of the table. And that, what, at the end of Spectrum, I was like, I want to be on that side too. So that was a catalyzing moment for me, which was like, I think I'm done with like, traditional finance or at least for now traditional finance and i want to get into the company building mode and i was in silicon valley which is there's not a better place to do right. it right I like mean, i was living ground. in middle park working in san francisco type stuff yeah, yeah but before we get after spectrum Mahat, have you always been this reflective you know in this role this this ceo role people ask you about your story pretty often yeah and so it forces you to think about okay. stuff pretty often um but I, you know, like the other part of it is I think when you, when you're lucky enough to kind of land in these seats is people ask you for like help and guidance a lot. And I try to spend a lot of time talking to people who are like earlier in their careers than I am and are trying to navigate what they're doing. They're like, why'd you do this? And why'd you do this? And like, again, none of this stuff is necessarily linear. Like it yeah. sounds like it yeah. is, but things just happen. But there are, to your point, of canalizing moments where you're like, I want to triple down on something. And that's, that was probably one. Do you think you, yeah, but up? I, I, oh, sorry, go oh. ahead, Brandon. No, Peter, go, go. No, I was just curious. Like, did you pick that up? I mean, you said earlier when you were at Spectrum, you were calling CEOs or entrepreneurs and hearing their stories. Was that the thing that motivated you to do the same for others? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'll tell you, the, the, well, for sure. I think I had good bosses too, mm. right? There's a guy at Spectrum who I, I used to work for um, and he would just like talk to you about your career and, he, you know, he was this prolific dude, like, love this guy. And I was always like, man, I would love to, like, turn into, like, a version of him. And it wasn't just, like, he was, like, good at his job. He's a good person, good values. Um, I don't know, like, the whole thing about him, his whole uh, brand, I was like, I'm sold. And, you know, I learned a lot from him, right? And so then as I started getting older, and older means, like, just getting more experience, <laughs> people are just like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about something. And I, I, I loved it when I received it. So... Passing that on has always been like a huge thing for me because um, I don't know, you can impact people pretty profoundly if you do it right. And that's, that, I think that's a good way to live your life a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. Brendan and I talk a lot about like as we age, we become more reflective, right? And thinking about, yeah. you know, what really matters and like how do we shape things and how do we do it in a meaningful way to help others. And yeah, it sounds like, it just sounds like you got there a little bit faster than we did. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. 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 Silicon Valley is full of that to give the Valley credit. It is, there's a lot of like, I think when you live there and you experience it, it's not the way, it's not always the way that it's covered in media. Mm. And so when you live there, people are very, very open with their time, right? You'll email like somebody, you'd be like, this person never gave it back to me. And they'd be like, great, let's grab a coffee on Wednesday at 12 o'clock, meet me here, mm. right? And there's an ethos in the valley around like mentorship and guidance and like, I fail here, don't they make this mistake, free advice. A little bit of it is that is um, probably like they love talking about themselves. So there's like a little bit of like, ah, let me tell you my story type stuff. Um, yeah. But there's also an ethos of like, truly like we're all kind of doing this. And mm -hmm. if I can bark at you any lessons learned the way, you know, than my path, um, I, I will do that. And I, I think that's a valley dynamic too. I wouldn't just say it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's like, a huge ethos that people don't talk enough about that happens there. That is like young people benefit from quite a bit. And so I did. And so it's, you're just feeding into the same system. 
Oh, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. I was just going to say, Spectrum. What happened after Spectrum? Let's get back yeah. on the path. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, yeah. um, go ahead, hater. No, yeah. I was going to say the path. The path took a turn. It's fascinating. Yeah. 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 So after Spectrum, I think it was, how do I get to the other side of the table, the operating side? And again, being in Silicon Valley, you, I would say you, there's like myths about the garage startup and like two people in a, in a you know, room and like five years later, you're rolling in like Scrooge McDuck, like swimming through the bath. <laughs> like, um, so a, a little bit of it was that, right? It was like, all right, I want to go really early, like nascent stage company and I want to build from scratch. So at Spectrum, I, I talked to entrepreneurs all the time. I made a connection with one guy who had sold his company. It was a games company, sold it to a business called Play-Doh. Play-Doh got acquired by Disney. Like, so he had this really cool path. Um, and he's like, I'm going to start another company. And if you're up for it, you could be my first employee. Right. And I was like, absolutely. Yes. Like, so sign me up. Um, and that, that was the step. It was like, I, I knew I wanted to do it. I was looking for the right opportunity. I had known this guy and I, he'd had a good track record. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Like now's the time. Right. Um, so it was a, it was a mobile games company called Kiwi, uh, based in Palo Alto. Uh, literally was like a working out of his house for the first couple of months. Um, him, his co-founder was a CTO and myself. So three people, uh, and we got really lucky early on, right? We raised our first round of funding from Sequoia Capital, which is yeah. a, a big venture firm. Mm -hmm. We worked out of their offices for about three or four months, which is awesome. Like you're walking by all these like entrepreneurs, investors, people you read about in the media, like they're literally sitting next to you all the time, which was really cool. Um, and are the first 24 months were like up and to the right, right? Like we were generating revenue. We were profitable. We went from three employees to 220, like just in like, boom, right? <laughs> wow. Um, it was amazing. So again, in my personal, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be a billionaire. Like, this, <laughs> like first, Sean, this is so easy. Like I'm, a, you know, everything's happening easy. Um, but then the reality of it kind of happened, which is startups are very like up and down, up and down. And the highs are so high and the lows are so low. Um, and I think on Kiwi, what happened was we were in the game space and it, I, I'm not trying to go too far into detail on this, but games or like movies or entertainment are cyclical, which is they'll be hot for a while, then the, the new one comes along and you kind of die, right? And that's literally what happened to our business. Like the, our first iterations of it, we were focused on Android because iOS was like really competitive. Android was going to be the bigger ecosystem. We had this whole platform play, yada, yada, yada. But we were really hot, all the games, and then we were not. And... And that was just like the, it was a truly a Silicon Valley story where at the end of the day, I was there for four years, um, financially didn't do anything. I was married with two kids, but experientially it was extraordinary, right? Like taking a company from three guys in a garage to what we did, raising capital, building product, learning how to distribute it, learning how to manage people, like all that stuff. It was like, I would never trade that four years for anything. Um, in my life, because it's just like early training grounds that I'm again another theme. I'm like still develop, like still benefiting from today um, quite a bit. Um, but it was a crash and burn story at the end. Like we sold it for parts um, at the end. What were some of the biggest lessons you took from that? I mean, I mean, I can't even imagine going from three to two hundred and would you say two hundred and fifty? Yeah, 
220, 220 yeah. people. I mean, that's hyper growth. There's a lot of challenges that come with that. And like in your role, what, what did you, what did you extract from it? Um, like overall lessons were, it was a bunch of really smart people in the management team, mm -hmm. like really smart people, but not product people per se. Right. And in tech, which I think is the right orientation, the best product should win, not the best distribution or the best like tricks of getting people into your funnel and all this. We were awesome at that. The analytical piece of that company, A++, like I, I think we should build an analytic company versus a games company. Mm -hmm. The reason we lost is because we were in a creative industry and a creative industry requires actual creatives to build like really cool product yeah. that then like, you know, people like enjoy because it's like a nice experience. Um, mm -hmm. And as the market got more competitive, the people who are really good at developing the best uh, creative product were the ones who were winner. And that's the way the market should go, right? Best product should win. We were smart guys who were um, good at distributing the product, understanding the analytics by the product, but not developing like the next version of it. Hmm. So that was a lesson in terms of the horsepower, the brains around the table can only take it so far. You have to build, build building things that people want sustainably over time. I know that sounds like obvious, but... Um, it wasn't when you go from so much success in two years, you're like, oh my God, I can do anything to like crashing out the back of it. Um, so it was a good early lesson. Um, I think another one is like brand names don't matter. Like you can have the best investors in the world. Like oh. C the CEO of the company was a Harvard undergrad, Stanford business school grad. He's, I love the guy, but like all like credentialing and all that stuff that like, you know, a little bit of like where I went to high school and all that kind of stuff. You put a lot of emphasis on that. Mm -hmm. um, you realize that that's a, you, you kind of put it to the side. Like, it's not like you can't judge people on where they come from, what they did. Cause a lot of the people who were kicking our ass were like, I don't know, like didn't go to college or didn't do anything. They just were really good at something. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a real, a real life lesson around like the way people acquire knowledge and what they do with it. Uh, it's not always the traditional means to have the best outcomes, right? Um, so uh, I thought that was awesome. Then also, like, success is not guaranteed. Like, you got to work hard no matter what. And, like, things things should never happen. If they happen too easily, usually there's something wrong with that. And um, that was a – I just took something out of that for sure. How did that product lesson carry forward to the next company that you went to? Because that – I mean – it's so true. It's interesting. You know, I've had lots of experiences where I've been at product forward companies and, you know, we invested everything back into the product and did really well. But then we had competitors that um, had different philosophies and did equally well, if not better. And I'm just curious, like, as you were moving on, like, how did you apply those lessons to the next phase of your career? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, so... The two requirements I had of the next position that I wanted were I love the mobile industry at the time. I thought there was still a lot of work to work there. And I wanted to stay within uh, like the go-to-market motion of B2C, which is it's not enterprise sales. So it's not like you're not calling people. It's like digital distribution, right? I want to use all the social media platforms. I want to use like a, a product-led growth. I want it to be self-service. Like I like that part of the world. I didn't want to go to like enterprise sales or B2B enterprise, right? Um, and uh, probably a second order one was like, I want to be at a design forward company, like something that solves a problem in a really, really nice, elegant way. Um, and then it had good unit economics, which is like always the thing. So 
the next one I joined, again, I had a fantastic experience on is a company called MyLIQ, which uh, which is pretty unsexy if you think about it from a Cal- like a Silicon Valley perspective. What they did was mild is tracking for expense reimbursement and tax deduction, right? So you're like, all right, if you're in the Valley, it's not like grocery delivery to your front door. It's not like... Um, Uber, like all these things were happening at the time. It was like mileage tracking, automated mileage tracking. But I, I this you might find this funny. I, I was in high school and there's this guy named John Trelevin and, and who I went to high school with. And we were driving somewhere in Hudson, Ohio, which is where we went. And he had his journal and he pulled it out and he's writing his journal. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, oh, my mom's getting me to track my miles. So I know like I, I'm driving from here to here. She just wants me to write like how much I'm yeah, I think it was for gas purposes mostly. He was like, it had a log of what he was doing. I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, so, it, and then when my IQ came across, I was like, man, it, it's not a Silicon Valley problem, but it is a massive problem for where I grew up and the people who I grew up with, and like, particularly middle school and elementary school, who are like still in Northeast Ohio, are like contractors or attorneys or architects or construction people and are driving for work. Yeah. This is a massive problem for them, right? Which is they're underestimating the miles they drive for work every single year. That means they're losing out on dollars that they could be saving by reducing their tax burden. And it's a, it sucks for them. Like all this stuff. And I was like, this is an awesome problem. Awesome problem in my mind. And it, it, it was funny. The founder of the company is from St. Louis, right? So we had this Midwestern connection. Uh, I went to college in St. Louis, but like he born and raised in St. Louis. Um, Went to like a high school like mine in St. Louis. So we had all these things in common. But um, he was like the founder CEO. I clicked with him immediately. And we kind of spoke the same language. And so the theory there was this app essentially is selling to prosumers who are people with Schedule C employees, people who own their own businesses. And what it did was it on Tractor Miles, it was free to start. So 40 drives for free. But then every any information after that, you have to pay a, become a paying subscriber and pay $6 a month, right? And the way we used to sell it was if you drive more than 12 miles for uh, work, this app pays for itself because it's 53 cents per mile, right? And it was just great. like amazing, right? Again, unsexy problem, uh, like ununderstood un- TAM, like all these things, but... Just awesome. And the team was fantastic. Design focus. So the guy from St. Louis went to Stanford. He was design, uh, prod design major at Stanford. Worked at this firm called IDEO, yep. which, if, you know, if you guys know IDEO, it's yeah. like the mouse was built, like the Apple mouse yeah. was built there. Um, and <clears throat> he was a design focus. He needed like a, he also business focus, but he needed like a business partner. I was like, sign me up. Um, and we joined and it was like an awesome story. Like we built it. It was fun. Uh, Frankly, I got again really lucky where a couple of months after I joined Microsoft is like, we want to buy this thing. And so um, I was just, again, one of those things, right time, right, whatever opportunity and Microsoft picked us up. So then uh, for a good, like a healthy price. uh, So, you know, we were all very lucky um, and got to work in Microsoft. So that was kind of my IQ. It was decision-making. There was great product, great founder, under understood TAM, like, People didn't really get it, but I kind of got it. I think because I kept thinking about the meatheads I grew up with, um, and and just fun. Like it was a fun experience. That's, that's wild, you know. And I'm I'm looking, I'm like thinking through the, the the few stops before that because you're at Spectrum. Spectrum was relatively small, right? That wasn't a large organization. And then 
No, it's it's all you know, and all things considered, Kiwi even at two hundred twenty five, still a relatively small organization. For sure. Now, like I live in Seattle, so when you say Microsoft, oh, like, have you ever driven? I mean, you've been to. I'm sure you've been to the corporate campus. It is yeah. massive, massive, massive. Yeah. and yeah. now all of a sudden, you know, you're part of this incredible. Like you are on this, you know, ocean liner now. Like, what was that yeah. like? Uh, it was. Uh, it was intellectually interesting, right? Uh, so Satya Nadella had taken over as CEO about a year after I, uh, before I joined, right? Mm-hmm. So you could, it was kind of the analogy is you could feel the tanker starting to turn, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, you can't make change that quickly in an organization that right. big. You could see the tanker starting to turn and you could see people succeeding in that environment and failing in that environment, right? And as an acquisition, I didn't really have a dog in the fight, just to be honest. Like I was, I was never going to be a, a, a Microsoft lifer. I knew, I knew that from day one, right? I was like, I'll do this for a while. Um, it's a great opportunity to learn, meet some people, figure out how Microsoft works. But this wasn't my career path. But, uh, but what it did do is like when you had that freedom of like I'm not stressed about like the next promotion or whatever, you're kind of like free flowing. So I'd go up to Microsoft, meet with all these people, talk about things. So you understood the organization pretty well. You could see it changing for the good, I think. Um, but it was drastically different, right? Because with 150,000 people, I think, I don't know what the exact number is for Microsoft even bigger. It's just like like day and night in terms of what I experienced and what that thing was doing. But it was a, I would like to if I didn't think it was a fantastic like time well spent, right? Again, it's just one of those things where you meet fantastic people who've been in microsoft for a long time uh you meet people who've been there for a long time you're like uh you're not fantastic but you're hiding and that's a, that's something you need to um there's a skill so like it was just like yeah yeah, yeah. exactly it's just like one of those like really cool experiences in life but nothing that i would want to make my not knocking anybody who wants to do that just wasn't for me in terms of what i want to do you know i i was part of a company that got acquired a small company 100 people we got acquired by I don't know, maybe it was four or 5,000 people, you know, publicly traded. So it was a big shift, right? You went from small startup to, uh, you know, larger corporate entity. And I, and I was there for three years and I, and I think it was some of the three of the most valuable years that I ever experienced career wise. Cause I I learned a lot about how how big corporations run and how do you move projects along in a way that are, that's efficient, even though you've got, you know, multiple layers, like how did, did you pick up any of that? I mean, was there anything in that larger organization from a just a you know operating on the day to day that you carried forward? Yeah, like so to credit um, for the first year, year and a half, they would let us operate independently, right? So we were in this big umbrella organization, but we were kind of executing against our own roadmap. Um, as time went on, naturally, they're like, cool, like, let's start integrating this thing more closely, which made total sense, right? right? Um, they bought the company, so that was the whole, like, <laughs> trade you make. Um, and as that was happening, um, I think lessons learned for me there were like, you know, startups work differently. And to Microsoft's credit, they wanted to learn how we worked and try and apply those things. I wouldn't say... Uh, throughout Microsoft, but in corners of where Microsoft worked, right? So we were really embedded teams, like cross-pollinated teams. It wasn't like product sits here and engineering sits here and marketing sits there and everybody kind of sat together, but also made decisions together. So a lot of this was like just evangelizing how we work within the Microsoft organization. I think uh, 
the rigor in which they did things, I actually appreciate it. Like particularly on the financial side, it was like they were pretty good about getting into the weeds and being thoughtful about the way they spent money and dollars and tracking them, which I thought was great. There was leadership stuff that I took right. away, right? Um, one theme was from even the CEO of, of Mile IQ. He had this concept of very simple language when you're talking to your teams, not in a pedantic way, but in a like just keep messages like really simple so people can digest them very easily. But his framework was tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. Yeah. Right? Three very simple things. It's like, and I think a lot of the times people can just get confusing or over intellectual about stuff and overcomplicating things. But that framework to me is stuck with me quite a bit. It's like, tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them, you're going to be blue in the face because you're going to repeat yourself so many times. But what that does is it lets that message seep into the organization, no matter who the audience is. And if, you have, if you're saying the same thing, thing to everybody, everybody's going to understand what's going on, right? And as you get into these, I'm lucky enough to be in the seat that I'm in, I think that lesson is coming back in a good way. Like I'm trying to utilize it more and more than I can, which is it's not always like you have to have to, you, frankly, it's hopefully most of the time you don't have the best idea or whatever, but you're making decisions at a strategic level and you're sticking to them. And you're keeping them simple and you're repeating them. So everybody kind of knows what they're working against or kind of working on from the same song sheet. That's something I think of Microsoft, particularly the CEO of my like you, but even that whole organization, they did a good job on, which is trying to articulate things simply, uh, holding people accountable to be clear. And it wasn't simple to get there, but the messages and the, the goals were very simple and digestible, which I think is, is really important for any organization. Yeah, so um, that, It sounded familiar because you learned it in <clears throat> public speaking, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that part of it too. Yeah. <laughs> I delivered it beautifully as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, Kajabi. So you went from Microsoft yeah. to Kajabi. And, you know, Kajabi is, it's just, it's a fascinating space. This creator space is just emerging in a way that, uh, you know, it, it's like on, it's turbocharged at the it's, moment. Yeah. Um, lots yeah, of competition yeah. out there, lots of interesting things that are happening. Lots of people who have just through the pandemic said, you know what, I, I kind of want to be my own boss. I want to do my own thing. That's right. So you, yeah, so right. you left so you, this, so you, this large organization and now and went to go to Kajabi. Like, what was that? First off, how did what you get that? there? Like, First, what was that transition like? Yeah, of course. Um, so Microsoft structured it where, you know, they kind of incentivize you to, to be around for about three years, right? So when my three years were ending, I was like, all right, like I need to figure out what's next, right? And so that's when you start like uh, meeting up. Again, the Valley, giving the Silicon Valley culture a lot of credit here. You just start having coffees and breakfasts and lunches and dinners. And you're just like, what's happening? Trying to re kind of, when you're in the startup world, you kind of know everything that's going on all the time. When you're in Microsoft, you don't have to be worried about it as much. So I was kind of removed from what was happening in tech at the like, ground level. So I reimmersed myself in like, what was happening? Like the trends are happening, what startups are doing well, what opportunities there are by these conversations. Um, so I, I started that I, and I was kind of, again, the same themes. I wanted to stay in a B2C distribution model. So product-led growth, self-service marketing, that kind of thing. Um, uh, this gets a little bit personal, but my wife and I were living in, in uh, Menlo Park um, and we had two kids at the time. And it's expensive as hell to live in the Bay Area. Like, and even if you're, we were super lucky, like we had an egg, like all this stuff, it was like, we're super lucky, but it was just like, man, like this is still not like the easiest life we could choose, right? And um, 
I was open to leaving the Valley as well because of that. I was like, well, there's got to be, you can do this in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to be my author bus staying in Southern Valley. I wasn't planning on leaving per se, but I was like, let's just open up the the pressure here and see where else we go. I was actually even thinking about Chicago because again, we're from the Midwest. My wife's from Illinois. I was like, Chicago is an easy place for us to land because, you know, all these connections, all that kind of stuff. But the main things I cared about were the end user being a consumer or prosumer, the technology solving, um, solving, reducing the administrative burden for for customers, right? In whatever capacity that is. So what my LIQ did, the way I found out about Kajabi was Spectrum Equity. So um, two guys I used to work with, one guy was my colleague and one guy I used to work for, they had put money into this company called Kajabi based down in Irvine, California. And I was grabbing dinner with him and his wife, who are very good friends of ours. Uh, His wife and I actually went to college together, though she was way too cool for me in college, so we didn't know each other. (laughs) And then uh, John Connolly, who is the board member at Kajabi, him and I were uh, friends, colleagues at Spectrum. And I was like, yeah, man, you know, like, you know, same constraints. Like, I'm I'm cool with leaving the Valley. I kind of want to stay in this, like, B2C, product growth, you know, SaaS world. And he's like, I got something. And I was like, okay, like, you know, sure. And um, and a couple of days went by and I was like, I don't know what he was talking about. So I emailed him. I was like, hey, man, just following up, like, what did you have? And he's like, check this company out. And so I, I went to their website. And I was just doing research and I was like, this is so cool, right? Pre-COVID, to be clear, right? And I was like, <laughs> this is so cool because the themes there are very similar to what my IQ was, right? The, the product was taking all this all these different different fragmented tech stacks that people have mm-hmm. and trying to consol- consolidate them into one software vendor that, again, reduces the administrative burden of being an online entrepreneur, right? So the, that is really cool. That theme to me was awesome because one, there's the consolidation of the all-in-one aspect. Two, it's all digital commerce, right? So do you make a bet on digital commerce being more in the future than now in 2018-19? Yes, right? Because I was like, this is the, this is the, easy. Like, this is not a bet. It's like, of course, that's going to be where it is. Um, and, and frankly, I knew the investors. So I was like, the, I trust these guys, like, yeah. implicitly. Like, good, bad, or ugly. Um, they'll treat me well. They're not, they're also smart guys. So I trust their judgment. Um, and then I was like, yeah, man, like, put me in touch. So... I met with the founder, a guy named Kenny Reeder, who's a founder CEO. Um, I absolutely love this guy. So he's born and raised in Irvine. Um, like, uh, built Kajabi from scratch, started in 2010, bootstrapped it for his first nine years. Wow. Right? So no outside investors, no nothing, just built this like, like foundationally amazing business, right? Mm-hmm. Both from a product perspective and financially. It was just like, Built right, right? Built sustainably. It was profitable. It was growing correctly. It was solving customer needs. The way the product roadmap unfurled was always, what do the customers need? We're going to build it. What the customer need? We're going to build it. And it sounds, again, obvious, but like he lived it, breathed that stuff. Yeah. And when I met him, I was like, man, this is really cool. Uh, and then when you think about the, the market was playing in, the digital commerce and all this stuff, I was like, this should be a massive company over time. Uh, I love it. Right. Um, and so then we moved. So we moved from Menlo Park, which is kind of right in the peninsula of the Bay Area. So kind of central Silicon Valley. It's like Mount View, Google, all these companies are next door. 
we moved to Irvine, California um, in like August of 2022. I joined in March of 2000. Oh, sorry, August of 2020. I joined in March of 2020, which is COVID, hmm. right? And that's something that I like, again, pure unadulterated luck, right? Because what companies like Kajabi did uh, like every single day for 10 years prior, all of a sudden became a huge need for people, right? <laughs> the ability to engage in commerce digitally and remotely away from each other, COVID just exacerbated that need to a degree that I don't think anybody anticipated. Mm-hmm. And it was just like gangbusters at the I mean, online courses, right? right? In a good way. Like all of a sudden that was... Oh. For sure, online yeah. courses, but what we've tried to do is our bread and butter in our history is online courses for sure. What we want to be thoughtful about is building the best platform from online commerce, right? And when we say commerce, it's like, we want to build amazing knowledge products, right? So online courses is that, membership sites is that, podcasting capabilities are that, a community product is that, it, newsletters and other other variations of the transfer of knowledge from one person to what another, one person to many, synchronously or asynchronously right. is our business, right? And we have all those knowledge products, but it's within a platform that enables you to build the website, take payments, manage your email list and have a CRM, understand business analytics. So it really is a consolidation of all these different fragmented tools that live online. You can do all of that via Kajabi. And when you think about the cost of it too, it's a lot cheaper to do it here as well, right? So like all those things are what got me really excited about it. And that's where I think the future of a lot of commerce is. It's like uh, more people are going to be becoming online entrepreneurs. It's easier. There's more money to be made. People control their destiny a lot more. The entire creator economy is about entrepreneurship and figuring out ways for people to make money off of what they know and love. And Kajabi's been in that business since 2010. So that that's kind of our story in a nutshell. How, so you joined as a COO and CFO. And how long, how, you were in that role for what, about a, a year? Yeah, so um, I joined again in March of 2020. Um, the story behind that is it's again it's one of those things that wasn't planned. So our CEO uh, again, Kenny, he um he had a family health issue, and so about a year and a half into uh, maybe a year and a quarter into the tenure here, he was just like uh, kind of torn, right? That this is his baby and he built it. Um, but he was just like, I got, I got, you know, to his credit, he was like just prioritizing uh, a situation mm-hmm. in his family, and he's like, I got to step out here because. We had new investors. There was a lot of stuff going on. He's like, I just can't do both at the same time, right? So he stepped up into our, he's our executive chairman and our a board member. Um, and I stepped into the CEO role after that, right? So again, it wasn't like I had ever planned to be CEO of Kajabi. I joined as like, this will be a great experience. And, uh, you know, like hopefully the next one will be like my chance to be CEO. But um, it's one of those things where you're just kind of right place, right time. So that's kind of how it happened. And- I hope Kenny's the health issue is all is okay. Yeah, no, they're, they're, thank yeah. you very much. He's they're they're great. They're good shape. Yeah. yeah. So how's that work with the founder being now the chair and you being the CEO? Like, what's the interplay there? It's a lot uh, in the sense of we talk yeah. a lot, right? So we had we have weekly like just office hours where we get together for like an hour um, every every Wednesday is like kind of where we sit down. And we just I talk to him about things I'm seeing and feeling, trying to get his advice. He's got all this amazing, frankly, founder institutional knowledge that like, I wouldn't 
be lying to if I were to say I'd be able to like come to that level of like, because when you build it, it's different, right? Mm -hmm. And having that resource there is just extraordinary, right? Like um, sometimes it's products, sometimes it's customers, sometimes it's like, I don't know, other things that are related to the business where he's like, well, this is how I would think about it. It doesn't mean it's dictatorial, right? Like I have my own opinion about stuff, but it's just a great sounding board and opportunity to talk to somebody who's like been in the seat that I, I, I cherish that quite a bit. So it's been really good for us so far. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And I, yeah. what a journey, right? From crunching numbers in finance to now literally like Kajabi couldn't be further away from that, that, that role in the sense of you're trying to empower, you know, individual uh, entrepreneurs to like break out. Right. Well, it's amazing. Like I would say that, you know, I joined as a CFO, but I was, I'm not like a traditional, like uh green visor, the corner, like <laughs> coming, you know, petties, uh CFO type. Like it was never my like MO, yeah. right. It was much more operationally focused from the get go, which is, uh, we can do all the finance stuff that you guys need us to do as a CFO and all that kind of stuff, like accounting and audits and all that kind of stuff. But it was much more forward in terms of like, what are the KPIs of the business? How do we make sure our heroes, who we call our customer, are successful? What are we building for them? How do we make sure they're providing them more opportunities to drive more revenue to them? Because our business, uh, just to kind of go back to this a little bit, it's different than a lot of the other businesses that exist in the ecosystem, right? A lot of the other businesses are like, take rate models, which is if you make $100, we're going to take 12%. So we're going to take $12. If you make $100,000, we're going to take 12%. We're going to take $12,000, right? Kajabi is this, like, I think, an honest transaction, which is you pay us a subscription, you make $0 on the platform, you can make a million dollars on a platform. You keep it all, right? All we're asking for is a platform fee and the rest is up to you to kind of build and do. So our job is to provide better products and services that enable our creators or our heroes to make more money. That is a cool position to be in, right? Because we're totally aligned in terms of what we want to do. Um, and like, you can kind of see that. Like we're, we keep embedding all these, like we made an acquisition of a company called Vibly. We're getting embedded into the product, uh, yeah. not free of charge, but it's like, we're not adding, we're not charging more for it. It's like putting more value right. into subscription that we think will provide, you know, more value to our customers that they can monetize more. More people will come to us because they're like, Jesus, this the full thing is like <laughs> everything here. And like, there's a lot of goodness there for our customers that we're really excited to kind of um, execute. Yeah. Hey, Ahad, you've given us a, a lot of your time here and really appreciate it. I do have one last question for you. And that is like, you, we just went through your career path and the, the different decisions and things that happened that put you on, you know, you know, and put you into different directions. If you had to do it all over again, would you take the same path? Yeah. Like, I, yes. I mean, like, I've been really fortunate, man. Like, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, I, some of these things, again, happened to you along the way where you're really lucky. Um, and I think I've benefited from that. Um, so, like, are there micro-optimizations along the way where if I, like, knew... Kiwi wasn't going to work out when I spent four years there, but like, you know, probably not. But then if I look back at it, the skills and the experience and even the feeling of failure to some degree is like a good thing to have, right? In his perspective to have that anytime you're in this tough situation, you're like, uh, things could be a lot worse, right? And so that perspective, I think um, you don't get until you've had some downs. So I don't know. I, I would be, I, I think I'd, I'm been like super fortunate. Um, through my career so far. 
Uh, I don't think it's been linear, but I think like linearity is boring, right? Um, <laughs> and so for me, it's been a, a cool journey. It's not, I'm not, we're not done yet. We have a lot of work ahead of us, but it's been, I'm really fortunate so far. So I don't think I would change much. Awesome. One final thing, Ahad, where can people find out more about you? Where do you want to send them? Kajabi.com, right? It Check it out. Check it out. I think it's, yeah. as you guys say, the creator economy, really like putting people uh, in our customers, our heroes, putting their livelihood in their own hands and letting them kind of control their destiny. It's kind of our reason to live. Um, and I think that is just proliferating in the world, right? People are quitting their full-time jobs. They kind of want to work on what they want to do. They always underestimate the markets that, that actually exist for them. Like we have customers who help uh, parents like sleep train their kids making million dollars a year, right? How to become a, how to become a, uh, a beekeeper. I can't, it, it, sometimes I question what I'm doing in my daily life, looking at what our doing and how they're making. And I just think that's going to become a bigger, bigger trend as time goes on, yeah. right? Putting the people's lives back uh, in control of themselves, I think, is like a cool business to be a part of, but a, a trend that I don't think is stopping stopping anytime soon. So as I think about it, it's like everybody here has knowledge, right? We're in the knowledge commerce business, um, and it's up to us to create a platform that enables people to kind of build a life, a sustainable business around their knowledge that I think people underestimate their capability to do that sometimes. And I just want to encourage people to kind of put themselves out there and see what can happen because you'd be surprised. Awesome. Uh, this was awesome, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank yeah. you guys so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host the Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.